Hey, so I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you're an artist yourself and you want some insider tips, insights, and general advice from artists you respect. One aspect of the business we sometimes discuss on Best Advice is rollout strategies. When you're dropping new music, you want to give it the best chance of getting heard. It's all about reaching the right listeners at the right time. That's why our team at Spotify for Artists built Marquee. Marquee is a marketing tool for turning listeners into bigger fans of your new music. With Marquee, you can send full screen recommendations of your latest album, EP, or single to the right fans as soon as they open the app. Listeners who see your Marquee are twice as likely to save your tracks, making it a better way to develop your audience than trying to drive streams from social media. To find out more, go to artists.spotify.com slash marquee. When Keith Giroux decided to run the Boston Marathon, the first thing he had to do was find out when the race was. Turned out it was only like 10 days from, from the day I thought of it, so I had about 10 days to get ready for it. Keith had never run a marathon, but that was the least of his problems. For starters, he wasn't registered for the event. He'd never even attempted to run a qualifying race. In fact, he'd never run any formal race ever. But Keith never intended to show up in Boston. That was an impossibility. Instead, on the same day of the actual race, he would run his 26.2 miles on a treadmill inside the Franklin County Jail in Greenfield, Massachusetts, where Keith was an inmate. When I decided to do the Boston Marathon on the treadmill, there were quite a few different obstacles. Um, First of all, I hadn't trained for it. I was confident that I could do it, but I wasn't sure how long it would take. Keith's goal was to run the race in less than four hours. So the first problem was finding a four-hour window throughout the day where we didn't have programs or classes going on in the jail or where we didn't have to be locked in our cells for a headcount. The original plan was to start running on the morning of April 18th at the same time the Boston Marathon began. But um, unfortunately, due to some other things we had going on in the jail, that wouldn't have, wouldn't have been possible. So I had to actually start you know, at breakfast time. And then there was the fact that he was still recovering from a couple of injuries. And that was another thing. My ankle was still very sore and swollen. I'd also slipped working in the kitchen two weeks before that and tore something in my knee, which was still painful, and I hadn't given any time to heal. Also, Keith didn't have proper running clothes. White cotton t-shirt and green polyester pants. I mean, you know, who runs in pants, you know? Um, surely not in the summer. The, the one question that I had, I think it was just the day before, what are you going to do about water? <laughs> It's like, what do you mean water? I'm like, well, you know, I haven't run a marathon, but I have a feeling that like water's pretty integral that, you know, these these people that are going to be running in Boston are going to have like water stops every couple miles. You're going to need some water. Nicole Fahey is a clinician who worked with Keith at the Franklin County Jail. And uh, I ended up asking one of the reentry planners on like, did these guys get access to a water bottle? And he had to get like security clearance to have a water bottle when he ran. Um, but an, another staff, the, the reentry planner, ended up bringing it in at, you know, sometime in the morning on that Monday. With just a few days before the race, Keith managed to overcome all the logistical hurdles. It wasn't ideal, but he had permission from the guards. He had water, a portable radio, a pad of paper to keep track of his time, and he'd set an ambitious goal for his first marathon, less than four hours. All he needed now was a pair of shoes. 
without laces. Welcome to Human Race. I'm David Weinberg, a reporter at KCRW in Los Angeles, filling in for Rachel while she's away on maternity leave. On each episode of Human Race, we tell a story about runners and the world of running. Today's story is about Keith Giroux and his attempt to run the Boston Marathon from a treadmill in jail. We first heard about Keith's story when he wrote a piece for Runner's World about it. And so I asked him to read a short passage about the morning of the 18th, when he stepped onto the treadmill to attempt his first marathon. At about 7.30, I stepped onto the treadmill. I placed a towel on the handle beside me and a cup of water into one of the bottle holders. The water bottle would come later. In the other holder, I placed a small cup of salt and my radio. I tied the excess cord from my headphones to a bar on the machine and turned the radio on. I placed a pen and a handful of Jolly Ranchers in the middle compartment on the machine. I looked at the clock. It was 7.35. I hit the start button and punched the speed up to 7.1 miles per hour. I was, now sur- I was not surrounded by thousands of other runners. The sun did not shine sweetly on my face as the crowd surged forward. There were no cheering throngs or tree-lined avenues. Instead, to my left, 42 men and one woman were eating a breakfast of cereal and boiled eggs. A cinder block wall stood two feet in front of me and another stood to my right. But I was off. This was really happening. Keith was 28 years old when he entered the Franklin County Jail to begin an 18-month sentence for tampering with the GPS monitoring bracelet after committing a probation violation. But this was not his first visit to the Franklin County Jail. Yeah, I mean, I remember a time when we were 16, um, myself and a couple friends had tried to break into somebody's apartment to steal some weed from them that we didn't get in, though, and the cops were called. And, trouble for that. That was like my first serious running with the law. Keith was in and out of trouble with the law for his entire adult life. His record includes assault with a deadly weapon, sexual battery, and failure to comply with the sex offender registry, among other charges. He grew up moving around New England with his mother and his stepfather, who died of alcohol-related illnesses when Keith was 15. Keith is also an alcoholic and has struggled with depression and addiction. Well, I got heavy into cocaine and and crack for a while as soon as I uh, turned 18, and then I uh, kind of progressed from that to uh, to pain pills, and I, I stayed doing those for a number of years. The jail looked pretty much the same as Keith remembered it from his previous stints, but everything else about the place had changed dramatically. Yes. It is my understanding that what is happening now is very different from how things were here in the past and really how things are basically nationwide in corrections. Nicole Fahey has been working as a clinician in the jail since October of 2015, and she's a big part of those changes that have taken place over the last few years. In the fall of 2012, the Franklin County Jail was chosen to participate in the Transition from Jail to Community, or TJC, a new initiative to help jails lower recidivism rates and create a smoother transition for inmates re-entering society. It's a partnership between the National Institute of Corrections and the Urban Institute. The program came at a time when the country, and New England especially, was dealing with a massive opioid crisis. I, l- I left here in 2009, and, and I moved to Tennessee. And uh, when I left here, I don't 
I don't even recall knowing anybody that, that did heroin. And that was seven years ago. And now it's just like it's just rampant. It's everywhere. And I, I run into old friends of mine that, you know, I went to school with and everything and and there's just like nothing left of them. The opioid epidemic is really it's kind of taken those thoughts of, God, maybe we need to do something different and push people to say, Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. We have to do something different and we have to do it now because this isn't going to stop. You know, it's it's not working just to have these guys come in and, and detox and then send them back out just to do the same thing over and over and over again. Um, because, you know, and, and honestly, right now, that was the best case scenario. Guys would get out and end up back in. It, it turned into guys are getting out and then they're dying because they're overdosing. So we need to do something different. Before the Transition from Jail to Community Initiative, or TJC, was launched, the treatment options for inmates were minimal, and they were typically contracted to outside agencies who didn't always do a great job of communicating with the jail staff. But now Nicole and the other clinicians are an integral part of the jail. The sheriff of Franklin County, Christopher Donnellan, encourages his staff to think of the facility not as a jail, but as a locked treatment facility. So, you know, rather than this place of punishment, this is where people are going to come for treatment. When inmates enter, they're given an extensive intake interview. A clinician will go through the inmate's family tree and find out what their childhood was like, ask questions about their mental health or substance abuse history. We have kind of an interesting intake, I like to think. It's, it's a different setup than, you know, when a lot of these guys will go in to meet with a you know, a counselor on the outside for the first time, I find that that can be like kind of sterile and cold and the same questions. But we will do something called, we call it the matrix. Um, and it has nothing to do with the movie, which guys are always like, oh, the matrix, like, you know, where you have to dodge bullets and stuff. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's, it's not like that at all. Nicole says the best way to think of the matrix is as a grid that she uses to help inmates understand their most problematic thoughts. You know, if we could listen to their mind in a time when they're like most likely to get jammed up, most likely to relapse, most likely to, you know, get really angry and lash out in like violent behavior. Like what what would your mind say? What would we hear? So we take a look at that and then um, conversely try to talk about like what really matters to them and what's important and what sort of they feel like has given them purpose or pride in their life and just have a conversation about values and then try to talk about using those values to create some goals while they're here. Once an inmate has gone through intake and enters a treatment program, there's a lot of group therapy. And it was in those group therapy sessions that Nicole began to talk to the inmates about running. I'm asking these guys to share a lot of stuff about themselves, about their pasts, about their behaviors, about their patterns, you know, a lot of shit that they're not proud of <laughs> to somebody that they don't know. So I feel like I need to come and bring some part of myself to that so that there's some trust and running is something that I can easily talk about. And it's something that I think personally kind of helped get me out of some darker times, I would say. And there were definitely some guys here that took an interest in that. One of those guys was Keith. Yeah, we did. We talked about running a lot, and uh, um, her enthusiasm for it kind of, you know, sparked something in me. And um, just to see how, like, see how happy somebody could get 
about something just kind of inspired me, you know. And there was one running story in particular that struck a chord with Keith. Welcome back to Human Race. And right before the break, Nicole Fahey, a clinician at the Franklin County Jail, had been talking a lot with Keith Giroux and other inmates about running. And when she told Keith this one particular story about her running group, it had a big impact on him. It happened around March. Nicole was part of a local running group for women, and they all decided to enter a lottery for a spot in the New York City Marathon. One of the women was like, oh, I didn't get in. You know, they're out. Who else got in? And I I went and I logged into my account and there was nothing there. And I was like so relieved (laughs) that I didn't get in (laughs) because it meant that I didn't have to think about it or or start any sort of training. And then later on at like five o'clock that night, I get an email. and It was like, congratulations on your acceptance to the TCS marathon. And I don't know. I, I think I nearly peed my pants. I was pretty nervous about it. And shortly after that, Nicole mentioned to Keith that she'd won this lottery, and she was really nervous about it. She'd never run a marathon before, and she knew it was going to be a lot of work. And I I shared that. And I think something about that um, motivated him to run or to try or to, to have the idea. The idea that Keith had was to run the New York City Marathon with Nicole on the jail treadmill while she was on the race course in New York. He saw it as a way to show support and appreciation to Nicole for helping him through a difficult time in his life. That, that was the original thought, and then a few days later I realized that I was um, going to get out of jail just a couple weeks before they ran that, so that wasn't really an option. But then he thought, what about the Boston Marathon? As the minutes ticked off, Keith kept a steady pace on the treadmill. But things were not going well. I mean, three miles into my my run, I was already getting huge blisters on my feet. Keith's shoes were not built for running. He'd borrowed them from another inmate. They were the best he could get. Yeah, they were horrible. Uh, Not even close to being good for running in. They're just some generic, classic Reeboks with straps. Um, They don't even have shoelaces because... uh, the jail has a policy against shoelaces. 5.2 miles into the marathon, Keith hit the stop button on the treadmill. The machine automatically shut itself off after every hour, so he had to break up his run into segments. And after each segment, he'd jot down his time on a notepad and then start the machine back up. First four segments went great. The blisters were a little painful at first, but then it, I got past that and it got to the point where I didn't, I couldn't feel them. Mile 18 is where, you know, where fatigue started slipping in just a little bit. And then it was also around that time, too, about mile 18, 19, where I real I could see the clock across the housing unit, and I could see that it was highly likely I wasn't going to make my goal of four hours. At this point, Keith had run further than he'd ever had in his life. His first experience with running happened, as it does for a lot of people, in gym class. We had to run the mile, and I absolutely hated it. Um, I actually smoked all through middle school and high school, so when it came to uh, gym class, uh, yeah, I was not very enthused to do uh, physical activity. (laughs) Uh, my, My mile was a little slow, and I was dead afterward. After that, the only running Keith ever did was from the police. In fact, the first run he went on as an adult happened at a prison in Tennessee. I was uh, nearing the end of a 
five-year sentence and um we uh the prison i was housed at we didn't have weights and so i was i just felt too lazy to get into calisthenics but i felt even more lazy sitting around doing nothing so i thought well you know maybe let's try running and you know see if see how i like that and you know i at least feel like i'm doing something and so, you know, I started running when we'd get out to the yard, which wasn't often because, you know, we were constantly on lockdowns and everything. But um, but every time, you know, we did get out to the yard, I'd, I'd run. And every time I went out, I found that, you know, I enjoyed running more and more. So every time I'd go out, I'd try to run farther and faster. And, you know, it wasn't long before I fell in love with it. So <laughs> that's that's really how, how it all started there. Keith didn't really have any formal training regimen back then. He wasn't really keeping track of how far he ran or working towards a goal. It was mainly just to get in shape and enjoy being outside. You know, it was maybe two or three times the size of a football field, you know, covered in grass. It had a full court basketball, just some pull-up bars and three uh, chain link fences with razor wire and electric fence around the perimeter. And, you know, I just run around along the fence, follow the perimeter around the yard. At the end of his sentence in Tennessee, he was extradited back to Massachusetts to serve an additional 18-month sentence. And when he arrived, he was disappointed to find that there was no yard at the Franklin County facility. But they did have treadmills. At first, I didn't even want to get on it, really. And then um, when I finally did, you know, I you know, convinced myself, well, this isn't so bad, I guess. You know, I could do this every day. And there were some benefits to running on a treadmill. Keith could look at the display and tell exactly how fast he was running. And he started to train a little more formally, mainly focusing on getting his mile time down. At first to 7.20, then 6.31, then 6.10, and finally 5.43. And then a few months into his training, he decided to run a half marathon on the treadmill, which at that point was the furthest he'd ever run in his life. And running that distance gave Keith some confidence. So when Nicole started talking to him about her training regimen and her plans to run the New York City Marathon, Keith's goal of running a full marathon seemed possible. Welcome back to Human Race. Right before the break, Keith Giroux had set an ambitious goal to run the Boston Marathon on a treadmill in jail. But the closer he got to the finish, the more unrealistic his goal of four hours looked. But he kept running, and slowly, word started to spread throughout the jail that, hey, this guy, he might actually pull this off. I knew that he had started running. I, I was here working and, you know, just kind of doing intakes in the office. And um, I get a call from the, the pod officer, like, he's, he's going to finish. He's got a half mile left. And at that point, like, the whole unit was around. A lot of different other staff were down just kind of, like, watching him finish and, and cheering him on. It was pretty cool, you know, just this herd of guys around the treadmill. What was going through your mind as you were watching that? Honestly, I, I just was like, it made me think, like, I okay, like, if he can do this on a treadmill, right, on a treadmill and, like, the issued sweatpants and, you know, Velcro sneakers and, you know, no, no fancy goos or, you know, everything that I, you know, that I at that point needed to, like, go for a 10-mile run, like, I, I can do this. I can do, like, I can do this marathon thing. I'm going to train, and it just gave me, like, a, a different level of confidence. And, you know, it was just, I was so glad that 
all of the other staff and inmates got to see that happening because I'm like, here's somebody that like had a goal in here. Because one thing that we hear all the time is just like, well, what am I going to do in here? You know, I of course I have goals. Of course I want to do things different, but like I can't do anything in here. I can't make the phone calls I want to make. I can't, you know, it's too hard to to do anything different. And I'm like, here's somebody who did something. Like he took his time in here and set an incredibly ambitious goal and then finished and all those guys get to see it. It was just a pretty powerful moment. Remember I, I sprinted, I cranked up the speed to like 10 miles an hour and sprinted for like the last quarter mile and hit the stop at the you know, 26.2 and um, uh, you know, I had a small crowd gathered around me patting me on the back and you know, high fives and fist bumps all around and but just uh, my initial feeling right there at the end was more sort of uh, disappointment than anything that I didn't you know, finish in under my goal of four hours. And then a afterward, you know, everybody uh, had to lock in for head count and our pod officer, you know, let me take a shower before I locked in. Keith stood in the shower feeling the sting of the hot water on his feet, which were raw in the places where his shoes had caused blisters. And I'm standing here in the shower and I was just sort of overcome with, with loneliness. Because I, I felt like I'd, I had just done something, something huge, but I'm in jail with people that I don't really care about per se, that I don't have anybody to share this with, you know? After his shower, Keith went back to his cell. He and his cellmate looked through the pages of his notepad where he'd written down his times, and they started adding them up. I was exhausted. <laughs> um, the two of us went over my times a couple times. There were um, a few different people added up the times, and they kept coming up with different times and stuff. And we finally, the two of us finally got it figured out. <laughs> and came up with the official time. Four hours, 13 minutes, and 58 seconds, I think. It's just under four hours and 14 minutes. Six months after Keith Drew ran his first marathon on a treadmill, he was released. Because of the sentence he'd served in Tennessee before being extradited to Massachusetts, he'd been incarcerated for five straight years. Initially, it was, um, I struggled with severe anxiety, and I, I don't take anything for it. I lost 10 pounds my first two weeks out because I couldn't, I couldn't eat anything. Keith would get overwhelmed with paranoia. When he was younger, he'd committed some crimes that he'd never been caught for, and he was afraid they would resurface and he'd be sent back to jail. So Keith dealt with his anxieties the best he could. Running was a huge help because it made him feel good, but it also got him out of the house. Ever since he was a kid, Keith has always loved the outdoors. Constantly outdoors, I'm an outside kind of kid. Um, I never got into hunting, but have always, always loved fishing. Um, I'm a fishing fanatic. Uh, I, I will find a river or a stream somewhere and, and I'll just walk it through the woods for miles fishing. Uh, whether I'm with somebody or alone, doesn't matter. I'll have the same amount of fun. I get the same amount of enjoyment out of it. It's peaceful, relaxing. Um, just love being outside. Uh. And now that he was a free man, he could go fishing with his brother, visit his mom and his aunts. 
I do. I mean, I have a I have a great support system. Um, you know, mostly just my family. But a lot of the time, Keith still felt incredibly lonely, and that was something he was totally unprepared for. Being lonely was one of the one of the things that really got to me because I I didn't feel like I should be so lonely now that I'm I'm out here and I'm I'm able to be around family and everything. This is common for people in recovery. Nicole says one of the most important things for someone like Keith is to stay away from his old friends and people from his past who could tempt him to relapse or fall back into bad behaviors. Oh, it's huge. I mean, when we, I talked about the intakes that we do and the question that we ask is, um, you know, who, who are your friends? Who are your people? And we call them pro-social supports. Um, and these guys are lucky if they have one person in their life that we would consider a pro-social support, meaning somebody that's going to support their recovery, somebody that doesn't drink or use regularly. Um, and uh, most of these guys don't have anyone like that. So being able to create a community of people around them is huge. This is another reason Nicole encourages her clients to run. It's an opportunity to create a new pro-social support network through running groups and races, and it creates a framework for setting and achieving goals, which is also really important for people in recovery. And then there's, you know, the other things that come along with it. You know, the dopamine, the endorphins, all of that good physical feeling. But then there's just that sense of pride and accomplishment that, you know, I think anybody kind of needs that reinforcement in a given day that, like, we can do things even when we don't want to, even when it feels like a challenge or even when we feel like we just can't drag ourselves out from whatever kind of muck we're in. Like, we can. But these guys especially, I mean, the, the stories that I hear, like, they were breaking my heart the lack of attachment and the lack of, I guess, good positive experiences that a lot of these guys come in with. And you ask, like, well, what have you been proud of in your life? You know, where are times when you felt like you, know, you had a reward for something that you did well? And it's just like blank stares that come back at you. So the idea that somebody can, you know, set a goal to run a 5K and finish, like, that's something to be proud of. And those experiences need to happen pretty much all the time for these guys because they're coming in at a deficit. You know, if you've got 20, 30 years under your belt with very, very few positive experiences, things that you can feel proud of, you got to find a way to start, you know, start having those things pile up. Much of Keith's life now is a struggle. But one way he has been able to start piling up positive experiences is by running. And one of those positive experiences came as a total surprise to Keith. I don't know if he told you about this or not, but one thing that kind of really impressed me and made me feel like I was in a place with people that like actually cared about these guys in here was when the you know, we had mentioned that Keith didn't have shoes to train. You know, like he was really trying to like meet a goal for this marathon outside and he still had the, you know, the crappy sneakers and I think they were starting to cause like injury. And the sheriff went out and bought him, you know, some nice ASICs. It was something that obviously we don't just do. It's that would be, you know, talking about like change and things being different. I would have to say that like a decade ago, that would have not been a thing that happened at all. Now, Keith is grateful for the shoes, but he's also angry 
the changes that have taken place at the jail over the last 10 years, they've been great for Keith and others like him. But he often thinks about how different his life would have been if he had access to treatment the very first time he went to jail more than a dozen years ago. Maybe he would have gotten clean and had a relatively normal, productive life instead of cycling in and out of jail, detoxing, using again. And it's especially hard to think about how it would have changed his relationship with his son. He's uh, just getting into his teenage years, and I've, uh, I think I, I just missed so much of his life that, you know, he, he doesn't really know me, and, um, and he's old enough to be able to develop his own thoughts and opinions on things, and I think he might just uh, uh, be confused and maybe harbor some resentment, you know, toward me missing out on so much of his life, you know. Keith doesn't have any contact with his son, but he's hoping that will change. First order of business is just getting back to some sense of normalcy, you know, just trying to build a life that I, you know, I should have started on a dozen years ago. And I'm, I'm just working part-time. Uh, I have no license, no vehicle. So at the work, I'm getting all those things. I need to find full-time stable employment. Keith is currently working a temp job at a factory making plastic containers. He's hoping it will turn into a permanent gig. For all the difficulty he's had settling back into life, one thing has gone well, his running. Every day after he got out, he went for a run, averaging six miles a day. On weekends, he'd go for longer runs, up to 15 miles. He was training for his next marathon, really his first official marathon, which he was signed up to run just three weeks after his release the Miles Standish Marathon in Plymouth, Massachusetts. I was going into this marathon um, pretty anxious, a little nervous. You know, I'd never done something like this before. It's, you know, doing one on a treadmill inside a penal facility is, is way different than, you know, running one out here with, you know, a ton of other people. Keith and his family booked a couple hotel rooms and drove up to Plymouth the day before to drive the course and scope it out. Yeah, we took a took a drive through route, you know, followed the whole marathon course to get an idea of what I was up against, you know. I was, and one of the first thoughts that crossed my mind when we started driving the course was how hilly it was. And one of the first feelings was, wow, I am not prepared for this at all. Despite Keith's apprehension, he ran an astonishing race. I was looking at my watch, and about mile three, I, I was able to see how, how fast I was really going, and I was, I was extremely surprised at the speed I was going because it was, it was way faster than I, I thought I would be going, and it, and it felt comfortable. It didn't feel like I was going to burn myself out. For the first 14 miles, Keith averaged seven-minute miles. Which was awesome, and then about mile 14 and a half, I was stricken with a nasty cramp, and I had to slow down to a slow walk. Eventually, the cramp eased up and he was able to pick up his pace. And he was feeling good until mile 24 when he hit a wall and started slowing down. I just crossed the past last mile marker, mile, uh, mile 25, and uh, I, was, I was so beat. I told myself I was going to slow down and just to a fast walking pace and just walk for 60 to 90 seconds. And... Um, I had just slowed down to a walking pace and took maybe three steps at that pace, and uh, another runner 
you know, comes up behind me and he, he pats me on the back. He says, come on, man. He's, he's like, we're almost there. We're almost there. He's like, come on, we can, we'll finish together. Let's go. So I'm like, okay. I'm like, all right. So I cranked it back up and uh, him and I ran the last mile together. And, um, and the last mile was just these two gigantic hills that seemed like they would never end. And they were right there at the end. Um, the second one was, uh, it was right at, right at the end. Um, and we got to the top of that hill and we had to uh, turn into a high school parking lot. And uh, we had to run around the backside of the high school and come around the front. And when you're coming around the front, there's, you know, there's the little home stretch. All I wanted to do was just sprint that last, that last little bit and cross that finish line flying. But I had this guy who uh, kind of pushed me through that last mile. So I was sort of overcome with a guilt trip and I'm like, man, he, you know, he pushed me through this. He helped me out. I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to take off on him right here. So I just, you know, stay running with him and we, we both crossed the finish line at the same time. And that was, that was a cool feeling. And, um, actually, uh, I sort of sat down, tried to recover for a few minutes as soon as we crossed the finish line. And, um, and, uh, he disappeared so fast. I never got to, you know, I never got to talk to him, thank him or nothing. Um, I still hope someday I'll, I'll run into him at some point and uh, be able have the opportunity to thank him. Three hours, 24 minutes, and 14 seconds was Keith's time. Now let's take a minute to marvel at that. He shaved 50 minutes off the marathon he'd run on the treadmill just seven months before. And this time, when he finished, he was surrounded by family. Um, much more rewarding than then, yeah, finishing on a treadmill with nobody to share it with, you know, sort of rejuvenating, um, plunging into this whole new life. It was a great way to get that started, you know. Keith still runs regularly, and recently he was contacted by someone who read his story online and is helping him get into the Boston Marathon this year. Keith was offered a charity bib by the nonprofit Hopkinton Center for the Performing Arts. And if he can raise $5,000 for the organization by race day, he'll get to run the Boston Marathon again. This time, in person. This episode of Human Race was produced by me, David Weinberg. Our theme music is by Danny Koch. David Willey is the editor-in-chief of Runner's World and the editor of this podcast. Human Race is a proud member of Panoply. <laughs>